Jesus came to give us abundant life. He didn't come to steal your fun. It says in Deuteronomy 10, 13, that God's commandments are for, are for our good. So God gives us commandments. He gives us uh, some guardrails and says you should live inside these guardrails. And those things aren't to steal our fun, but instead, God sets these guardrails up so we can have joy and live the life that he created us to live. Because God made us, right? He created us. He knows everything about you. He knows your deepest hopes and desires and dreams. He, and God knows everything about your personality. So I think like if we obey the one who knows everything about us, the one who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die, in that space we'll find joy and satisfaction. I really believe that. And here's the deal. All of us in this room are at a formative stage in your life. You know, for me, I'm young married. I'm not in college anymore, but I'm still at a formative stage in my life. For most of you, you're in college. I think everyone's in college besides the staff. And you're at a formative stage in your life. You're making decisions. You're deciding what you believe about the world. You're deciding how you're going to live. You're deciding what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. You're deciding what uh, career you're going to choose. You're choosing your spouses, possibly, or trying to choose your spouse, but maybe they don't want to be chosen. I don't know. But you're trying to figure these things out, and you're trying to build your life. In this season, you're building your life, and here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that you would build your life on Jesus, that he would be the foundation that you build your life on. And I promise you that if you build your life on Jesus, you're going to find and have joy. You're going to, or to live the life that you were created to live. Now, there will be bad things that happen, as Mackenzie shared. There are bad things that happen. We talked about that last week. I can't do the sermon again, but you can listen online if you want to, and and hear why God allows bad things to happen. But in the end, we can know, it says in Romans 8, 28, that God works everything for good for those who love him. So if you follow Jesus, at the end, you'll be able to look back and say, God worked everything for good. So my prayer is that you would make Jesus the king of your life, and that you would decide to follow him. So tonight, we're going to talk about just how Jesus became king, and also talk about how we can become the person that God created us to be. And I think the answer to both of these questions is actually the same. And we'll see that in Mark chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to verse 27. Uh, we're going to work verse by verse through this uh, throughout the night. And the main idea tonight is this. Jesus is the greatest of all time. You're, this is the fourth time you've heard this. He's the greatest of all time. There's only one more week. And here's something i got to say before I say the main idea. Next week, Pastor Jason's preaching, okay? So get pumped. It's his first time preaching at Chi Alpha, and he's going to talk about how Jesus is a friend. So I don't get to talk about that, which is kind of sad, but Jason's going to kill it. It's going to be a home run. Just out of the park, all right? So anyways, back to the main idea. Jesus is the greatest of all time because he is the promised king who leads us into joy in life. That's what I'm going to try to bring home for us tonight. So I'm going to pray for us before we jump into it. Jesus, I pray that you would be with us over this next few moments as we look at Mark chapter 8. And God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. God, I pray that, that your spirit would be here. Holy Spirit, I ask you specifically to be here tonight and to reveal some truth to our hearts tonight, to peel back some layers and to speak the things to us that each of us need to hear. So God, I pray that you would have your way in this service and that you would bring the word to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple things I want to say about the gospel of Mark before we jump into it. The gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. It's kind of cool to know. Uh, 25 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, this is what scholars say, both Christian and secular scholars say that the Gospel of Mark was written about 25 years after Jesus left the earth, so about 60 AD. That's about the time that the Gospel of Mark was written. And uh, in this Gospel, we see that Jesus' people, so Jesus was Jewish, 
Okay, if you didn't know that, Jesus was Jewish. So Jesus' people, the Jewish people, were very slow to understand who Jesus is. They're trying to figure out what he came to do. Through the first seven chapters, they're having a very tough time figuring it out. Even his disciples aren't really sure what he came to do. And at this point in the gospel of Mark, the positive responses to Jesus have only come from outsiders, so from non-Jewish people, from Gentiles, and declarations of Jesus' true identity have only come from or from the narrator, so from Mark, so he knows he's outside the story. It's third person, like he knows like, who Jesus is. This is years after. Then also from God and then from demons. So humans aren't figuring out who Jesus is. But in Mark chapter 8, we start to see that they're figuring it out. And something important to understand too about the story of Christianity is that the Old Testament is the story of the Israelite people. So Israelites, Jewish, it's kind of interchangeable. Okay, so the Old Testament's telling the story of Israel. God is forming a people for himself so that they can be a light to the nations, so that they can bring everyone to Yahweh, to God. So the Jewish people are supposed to bring the message of, of Yahweh to the nations, but they're failing at it. They're failing to obey the law. They're just thinking it up. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to come myself as Jesus, as an Israelite, and be the faithful Israelite to be a light to the nations. And now today we're sitting in Cedar Falls, Iowa, talking about Jesus. And we know who Yahweh is, okay? It's amazing if you read the Old Testament. In Exodus, uh, God sends the plagues on Egypt. And he says that the reason I'm doing this is because I want people to know who I am. And we know who God is today, don't we? We know who Yahweh is. It's really incredible if you understand the story of the Old Testament. So I encourage you to read it. But there's something in the Old Testament that's going on throughout uh, the pages of the Old Testament, specifically in the prophetic books. There's this growing expectation that God is going to send a Messiah, that God is going to send a king to deliver the Israelites. Because the Israelites, there's times where they're prosperous, there's times where they're oppressed, there's times where they're doing great, they're doing their thing, and then there's times where they're being occupied by other countries. So um, or the nation of Assyria takes them over for part of the time, and then Persians do and the Babylonians, and here in Jesus' time, um, it was actually the Romans who were occupying the Jews, and they thought that this king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament was going to come and overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom again of Israel. Like They thought that God was going to send an earthly king to set up his rule and to bring Israel back to prominence. So in Mark chapter 8, we see that they're starting to think that this might be Jesus, okay? And there's some prophecies in the Old Testament about this. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 says this. You've seen this verse if you've been in church around Christmas time. It says, and this is written 700 years before Jesus is born. I get that. That's amazing. All right, let's read this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and a peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, at, or so this is a messianic prophecy, okay? This is about the king who's going to come, and at the time of Jesus' life, these messianic expectations, what we call it, messianic expectations, are raging because they're being oppressed by Rome, and they want someone to come in to do work and to overthrow Rome. And they're expecting that. And there's different people throughout the time of Jesus' life that are saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. And they all die and just fade off into history. But Jesus is going to do something different. All right, let's read this. Let's read Mark chapter 8. Uh, let's, let's read our text as the disciples begin to realize who Jesus, 
is. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of, of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and, and there's others who say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him. He says, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All right, so the first point tonight is this, if you're taking notes. Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, who was sent to become the king of Israel, to be a fulfillment of those prophecies, and also the king of the world. So in our text, Jesus poses a question to his disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they offer up different explanations. They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, who is this prophet in the Old Testament, who's crazy, you got to read it. It's cool stuff. It's in the book of 2 Kings, I believe. And he says, others say a prophet. So if Jesus asked us this question today, we'd probably say, well, the Christians say that you're God. Uh, you know, secular people say that you're a good teacher. And, and the Muslims say that, you know, that you're one of the prophets. That's what we would say. That's how we would uh, describe how people uh, speak of Jesus. But Jesus didn't want us just to describe what other people think about him. He wanted them to tell him specifically, what do you think about me? So Jesus says, or he says, who do you say that I am? And here's the thing. Let's back off the text for a second. Each of us need to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you think that Jesus is? Is he God? Is he Lord? Is he a good prophet or a good teacher? Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And really, when we answer that question in a way where we call him Lord and God, and we put our faith in him, that's when salvation happens. So when you're praying the prayer of salvation, really you're saying, I know who you are, Jesus, and you're putting your faith in him. And this is how the disciples responded, though. Peter receives divine revelation. He's the first one to say it in the Gospel of Mark, and he boldly states that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. So Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is translated to the Hebrew word Messiah. So they're interchangeable, and these two words just mean the anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. Peter figures it out. The Jews were expecting the anointed one to come throughout just much of their history and in varying degrees depending upon how things were going. And, and now Peter figures out that Jesus is finally the Messiah. He's here. So the expectation was that God would send a king in the line of King David. So who was a boss king in the Old Testament, really cool. So the guy had to come from that line. And that he would bring a decisive change in the plight and struggles of Israel. So this Messiah would change things for, for the country of Israel, for the nation of Israel. This, this king would end war. This king would bring peace and plenty. And some verses even point to the Messiah's universal implications. And today we believe that Jesus isn't just the Messiah for Israel, but also for the whole world. So Jesus had been traveling with his disciples for several months, perhaps for over a year. And they've seen him teach with authority. They've seen him heal. They've seen him cast out demons. And now Jesus wants them to identify who he is. If they are to continue on with him, they can't keep spectating, but they have to get in the game. They have to get into the work of being the Messiah's people. And some of us have been spectating. That's the reality. We've been watching Jesus from a distance. But I believe that tonight that Jesus wants to just ask some of us to come in to the game to really, for ourselves, say that Jesus is the Messiah and to join in with him on casting out demons and healing the sick and bringing people to faith. I believe that Jesus wants to call us into that. 
tonight. So the, the disciples have now rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, but they had some wrong expectations about what Jesus was coming to do, and Jesus was committed to setting the record straight. Don't you pray that Jesus would set the record straight in your own heart when you got it wrong? Don't you pray that the Lord would discipline you and show you when you're wrong? I pray that he would, because if we go off on our own expectations and just make Jesus into our own image, we're going to be sadly, sadly mistaken. And we're going to get to, uh, to the end of our lives and, and look at Jesus, and we're going to realize we had you all wrong. So I pray tonight that if that needs to happen, that God would correct some wrong ideas we have about Jesus. So verses 31 through 33 says this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside. Just picture this. Peter takes him aside. He begins to rebuke the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But turning and seeing his disciples, so Jesus is like, you're rebuking me in front of my disciples? You're about to get it. All right, so this is what he says. He rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Guys, if Jesus calls you Satan, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. You know, Jesus loved Peter, but he called him Satan. Sometimes it's okay to get a little smack from Jesus, all right? Point two tonight is this. Jesus became king not by force, but by sacrificing himself for the good of the world. Jesus was most certainly well pleased that Peter had finally identified him as the Messiah. This ragtag group of disciples had been hanging out with him for months and months, and and now they're finally starting to get it. And Jesus took this opportunity to share some more details about just what he came to do. And he began to explain that, that he would not become king by sacking Rome and liberating Israel, but instead he would become king by suffering at the hands of the Jewish leaders, being killed and then rising from the dead. This would have sounded ludicrous to the disciples. Okay, you're telling me that you're going to get killed and then you're going to rise from the dead. That doesn't sound like this king who's going to come in on a horse with the sword and just start, you know, killing people, taking them down, setting up a new kingdom. That doesn't sound like what we thought you were going to do. They're confused. Sometimes we're confused. We put our faith in Jesus and then we're like, oh, is that just all butterflies? Like, I got to deny myself? We're going to talk about that in a few verses. I'm getting ahead of myself. But, whoa, what is this thing? That's what the disciples were thinking. What is going on here? So Jesus says he's going to be killed Peter replies and says, wait a minute, no, that's not what's supposed to happen. And he rebukes Jesus and tells Jesus what to do. And Jesus returns Peter's rebuke with a harsher rebuke. Get behind me, Satan, as he said. So whenever we play God and we try to assert our own will over God's will, we're in line with Satan. That's what Peter was trying to do. He was trying to say, I know better. He's trying to say, I know what's good. And Jesus says, you're on the same line as Satan when you do that. So Guys, we need to make sure that each of us are humble before the Lord and say, God, whatever you want to show me. We say, God, whatever you want to do in my life, we are willing and we're obedient to whatever you're asking us to do. Because if we're not, if we're trying to assert our own will over his, we're actually acting like Satan. So Peter was setting his mind on worldly things and, and not on the things of God. Peter wanted power. Peter wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand as Jesus ruled the world. But God wanted to save the world and extend his love and forgiveness to those who are furthest from him through the sacrifice on the cross where Jesus pays the debt of our sins. Jesus would not become king 
and usher in the kingdom of God by force or by military power, but by dying. Isn't that counterintuitive? Sounds really counterintuitive to me. So Jesus was not a solution to Israel's political plight, but he was a solution to the world's spiritual desolation. He came to save Israel spiritually and to save us spiritually. He came to save Israel so that all the nations could know who God is, because up to this point, only Israel really knew who God was. So some of us can relate with Peter tonight. You know, maybe you're struggling with what it means to follow Jesus. And it's okay if you don't quite understand. It's okay to go on a journey. Now, you've got to get this. Peter had been with Jesus, been with Jesus in the flesh for months. He's watching, you know, Jesus kick down the gates of hell. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. And Peter still ain't figuring it out. So if you're on a journey, that's okay. Me too. I'm trying to figure stuff out too. It's okay. We're on a journey together. But I pray tonight that if Jesus shows you his will or throughout this year, or throughout your life, whatever, when Jesus shows you his will, that you would submit to it. That you wouldn't be like Peter and try to rebuke Jesus, but you would instead obey whatever Jesus asks you to do. And we can be safe in that space where we obey Jesus, because Jesus knows what's best for us. So Jesus then goes on and he juxtaposes Peter's rebuke and his selfish desires with the true way of discipleship. So when I use the word discipleship, that's just uh, the means by which we become a follower and, a, and more specifically a mature follower of Jesus. It's this process of discipleship. So Jesus goes on by defining what discipleship looks like. He says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a follower of me and a son or daughter of God, the way is not selfish pursuit and individual autonomy, but instead the way is surrendering to God and laying down your life for the world, or just like Jesus did. So let's read the rest of these verses, and we're done after this. Verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Does anyone listen to Toby Mac? back in the day? Okay. If you don't, that's a good thing. But there's a song like that. I don't want to gain the whole world. Yeah, don't sing it though. Don't sing it. No, that's just me singing it. No, don't do it. It gets corny when that happens. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. All right. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. All right, it's getting serious now. There's no Toby Mac in this part. Toby Mac didn't sing about this. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? So the last point tonight is this. We find joy in life and become the son or, the son or daughter that God calls us to be by surrendering our lives to King Jesus. So Jesus has explained how he will become king, which is through suffering and through dying for the world. Now he shifts gears to tell his disciples how they can become the person that he's called them to be. So I like to think of it, Jesus has said how he will become king, and now he's showing us just how we can be princes and princesses, because we're God's kids, right? He's a king, then we can be a prince. So girls, you can be a princess in the kingdom of God, okay? That's cheesy. All right, so anyways, he's showing us just how we become all that he has called us to be, he calls the crowd to himself along with the 12 disciples and tells them, if anyone is to follow me, then they must, 
or deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, for us, that might sound kind of cool. You know, the cross is a symbol of love, which, you know, rightfully so. Jesus died on it for the hope of the world, or for the world. You know, it's or something we wear on our necks often. But in Rome, in first century Rome, the cross was repugnant. And it was an instrument of cruelty, pain, dehumanization, and shame. The cross was actually the symbol of Rome's oppression as they would use it to put down rebellions. So Jesus is saying, they think he's going to sack Rome, and he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to take up a cross? What in the world is this guy talking about? I think we have that experience sometimes in our faith. We're like, hey, I thought everything was going to be perfect. Wait a minute. I got to take up my cross? What's that about? I thought everything would feel good. But at that spot where we come to terms and realize that following Jesus is actually self-sacrifice, it's actually laying down your life. At that place, we'll find tremendous joy, I promise you. Let's kind of unpack this a little bit more. So taking up your cross, it symbolized the complete self-denial and a total just relinquishment of your life to Jesus. It meant giving up everything for Jesus. And this would have been a, actually really relevant in 60 AD when uh, the people who Mark wrote this for were actually reading this, because there were people coming to kill Christians. They were putting Christians on crosses. So this is very, or very literal for them when they read this gospel. Like, they actually might have to take up their cross. They might be crucified. For us, we get to think of it as not being greedy and, and not sleeping around and waiting until marriage. But for them, they're saying, like, I literally have to take up my cross. Like, I might actually have to be crucified for my faith. Whoa just totally changes things in our head when we realize what these people were actually going through. They were actually talking about a real cross. And if you're willing to die for Jesus, then you know that you've given everything for him. You're not holding on to anything. And I feel like we so often hold on to things that pale in comparison to that, and God understands why you're struggling. But I, th- but I think we can find hope and encouragement from the early church who actually considered it to be, an, or to be a tremendous honor if they were chosen to die for their faith. Now, thankfully, in America, we don't have to worry about that. Like, there's no one hopefully going to come in here and kill us for being Christians. But there are uh, some other things that are actually more tempting at times that are vying for our attention. There are things that are vying for our affections, things that are claiming our allegiance over Jesus. So Jesus continues. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. So Jesus is saying, that whoever is unwilling to lay down their physical life for the gospel will lose their eternal life. But whoever loses their physical life for the gospel will save their eternal life. Jesus knew that the disciples would be persecuted after he left earth, and he warns them that if they deny him in order to save their earthly life, then they will lose their eternal life. And that's not to say that God doesn't show grace. There are very many stories in the early church of people who would deny Jesus, and then they change their mind and say, actually, kill me. So God can give you grace. It's not like you're just out of luck if you, you know, uh, slip up and deny Jesus because, you know, we're sinners. Jesus cleanses us of our sins. We're going to still sin. But if you choose the world over God, if you choose your life over God at the end of the day, then you won't be one of God's. You just won't because Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you. This is serious stuff, guys. Christianity is serious. This is real. Like, this is real life. This isn't just something we do on Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings. Like, this is real. For the disciples, it was real. For us, it can be something fun we do on the side. But for the di- disciples, it was all or nothing. 
Like you either follow Jesus and probably die, or you don't follow Jesus. You have two choices. You couldn't be in the middle. I think that was good for them because so many of us are deceived. Like we ride in the middle. We try to straddle both fences and we think we're good because no one's coming down our neck telling us that we're going to have to die for our faith. But the disciples, they had to make a choice. They had to be resolute. They said, if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I'm going to go all in. I pray in this place that each of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus would choose to go all in, to give everything for him. J.R. Edwards says this. He's a theologian. He says, when confronted by the call of discipleship, disciples do not have a both and choice, both Christ and their own lives. They stand before an either or choice. The claim of Jesus is a total and exclusive one. It does not allow a convenient compartmentalization of natural and religious life, of secular and sacred. I do my thing here, but then I go to church here. No, that is not allowed. You can't do both. The whole person stands under Christ's claim. So when I was in high school, I I tried to straddle both fences. I tried to be a follower of Jesus, to experience the benefits of salvation and Christianity, but at the same time, I didn't want to put Jesus over my academics. I really struggled with that. That sounds silly. Like doing or getting good grades is a good thing. Please do that. But for me, getting good grades was a God in my life. And if I had to skip church, or I had to skip all this stuff, not be in biblical community to get good grades, then I would. Like ultimately, if I had to choose between good grades and Jesus, I'd choose good grades. That's where I was at. And it got more serious than that. There were times when I would decide to party and to fool around with girls and at the same time I wanted to call myself a Christian but that just doesn't work. I can remember one time I was at a party and I had a beer in my hand and this girl, you know, because everyone knew I was a Christian at my school when I was in high school and this girl was like, wait, you're a Christian and you're here? I'm like, yeah. And I felt really uncomfortable. That's awkward. It's really awkward. Like you're feeling like crap. They found me out but that's what I was like for two years. I was trying to straddle both fences. I was trying to be a Christian but also called the shots in my life, and I was deeply dissatisfied and depressed, and, and it just wasn't working. We can't do our own thing and follow Jesus. Those two things just don't go together. If you truly want to follow Jesus and have a relationship with him, it has to be exclusive. You have to, re- to refuse the desire to be the Lord of your own life and instead bow at his feet. So what changed things for me was I encountered the love of God. And once I genuinely encountered his love, I was willing to give it all. See, guys, I don't want you to walk away from this place and say, I need to work harder. Like, I am not being a good disciple. I stink. All right, let's work harder. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Instead, I'm asking you to to encounter the real risen Jesus. Because when you do, when you truly encounter his love, it will shake things up in your life. When you encounter the ferocity of God's love, it will change you. It will change you in your deepest inner being. And maybe you're on a journey. Sometimes it takes longer. Maybe you're going on this journey and God's slowly revealing himself to you. And that's okay. Continue on that journey. But there has to be a point when you decide that this love is so great that the only way I can respond is by giving everything to him. It's the only way I can respond. And I believe that, that just when there's a generation of college students at the University of Northern Iowa who say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I believe when that happens, this campus will begin to shift. I believe that with everything I have. I challenge you guys. That's why I'm calling you up to this because if we just do church, if we just try to do both things, then we're never going to reach our city. We're never going to reach our campus. We're never going to reach our world. There needs to be people who are willing to die for the gospel, to literally die. And there needs to be people who are willing to 
or to give up their desires for the gospel and say, I'm going to die to myself. Have you heard that phrase, die to self? There has to be people who are willing to die to self so that they can live in Christ. That say, my desires, my dreams, and my hopes, those are nothing compared to what God has for me. And maybe some of your dreams will come to pass. Maybe God will have that same dream for you. But if it's God's dream versus your dream, your dream just needs to go down. Your dream needs to not have any say. It needs to be God's dream for your life. So are you asking those questions? Are you asking God, what do you have for my life? Because I believe that there are men and women sitting in this room, there are people in this room right now who could change the world. I believe that. But it's only going to come when you surrender your whole life to Jesus and say, you have complete ownership over my life. It's only when, that's the only place it will come at. You can't just do your own thing, and if you do, you're going to get to a point where you realize you missed it. I don't want you to miss it. The worship team would come up. We're going to close out here. The way of following Jesus is the road of self-denial. The way of discipleship is the process of continually dying to yourself and submitting to Jesus and his authority. And the mark of the Christian is you say, more of you and less of me. And here's the thing, it's not just about doing something. Guys, when you do this, when you give your life to Jesus, when you submit to his lordship, when you do that, you're going to find life. John 10.10 10 again, it says, I came so that they may have life and have it to the full. At this spot of surrendering yourself, in this place, that's where you'll find the life that you're meant to live. Guys, we're the most depressed generation in history. It's the reality. We're the most depressed generation in history. And I wonder why that is. Why do you think that is? Because we've been told since we were a little kid that the world's all about us. It's all about fulfilling our dreams. And we find as we pursue our own desires and pursue our own dreams and all that, that it actually comes up like really short. It's not super satisfying. But the place where you're going to be satisfied is when you say, I'm going to follow the demands of the gospel. I'm going to give up everything for it. In that space, in that space, you'll find joy. You'll find life. That doesn't mean everything will be perfect. That doesn't mean you won't be depressed at times. It's going to happen. Bad things will come. But it's going to mean that you know, that you know, that you know, that you're in the center of God's will for your life and that you're doing what he's asked you to do. So Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62 says this. This kind of sums everything up, this story. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had just said the same thing that he said in Mark 8, and then he goes into this right here. So this comes after our story in Mark 8, although it's in a different gospel. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead, or leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say for, or farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. People tell Jesus that they want to follow him but they come up with different excuses in our story as to why they can't journey with him. You know, one said they need to bury their father, which is legitimate, and another says that they need to say bye to their friends at home. Both, you know, real things. Jesus gets that. But to both, Jesus says, you can't just look back at your old life and still follow me. You can't put things in front of me. There's nothing wrong with wanting to bury your dead parents. There's nothing wrong with wanting to say bye to your friends. But, but if those things come before Jesus... And there's something wrong with that. 
If we want to be disciples of Jesus, then we have to be willing to give it all for him. You know, Luke 14, 33 says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus, we must renounce the things that separate us from God. We must renounce greed and choose generosity. We must renounce putting our own personal aspirations above what Jesus has called us to do. We have to renounce isolation and choose community. We need each other. We have to renounce isolation. Introverts, holler, you know, I get you. But we have to renounce isolation and choose community and do life with people. And we must renounce sin and choose holiness. We must renounce sexual perversion and choose sexual purity. And we must allow Jesus to direct our steps in our career paths and our search for a spouse. Don't just marry anyone because they're nice. Allow Jesus to direct your steps in your search for your spouse so that's glorifying to God. Allow Jesus to determine where you're going to live after you get done with college. Get a map out and say, Jesus, where do you want me to go? If we wish to follow Jesus, we must give everything to him and allow him to lead us. And it doesn't mean we won't enjoy the good things of life, but it means we must allow him to be king. And we must allow him to be Lord theologian named Marty Middlestat said this this week, and actually I heard him say this at a conference. He said, Jesus says, choose me over family. Someone needs to hear that tonight. Choose me over family. Okay? Pack light and be ready for a hard life. It's the most beautiful but demanding life that there is. So tonight you have to ask yourself, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you want to be, or to be a member of his kingdom and follow him down the road of self-denial. It may be tough, but it will be the best life. It may be hard, but you'll find joy unspeakable. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, before anything ever came into existence, Jesus saw your life. Jesus, or Jesus knew every thought that you ever would think. Jesus knew every desire that you would ever have. Jesus saw the good and the bad. Jesus saw all the decisions you'd make. He saw the times that you would choose his stuff over him, that you would choose the world over him, but he still decided to come and to die for you. When God should have abandoned us, when God should have said, they're rebellious people, I've loved them, and they've just rebelled, and when God should have abandoned us, he said, no, I'm going to send rescue. And Jesus, a member of the Trinity who's been with God and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, comes out of the Trinity, comes into earth, and lives a perfect life, and never does anything wrong, and then People want him to be the king. People want him to be the Messiah. The disciples are ready to sack Rome. They're like, let's do this, baby. He rides a donkey into Jerusalem, and people are praising him and saying, let's take down Rome. But Jesus says, I'm not going to take down Rome. Instead, I'm going to lay down my life for the nations. That is our God. That is Jesus. That should compel us to be different. That should compel us to follow him down the road to Jerusalem and to lay down our lives as well and to say, Jesus, all of you, none of me. Jesus, I'm giving everything to you. Jesus, whatever you want me to do. So I pray that we would do that tonight. I pray that we'd make Jesus king. He's worthy of that. If you'd stand with me tonight. You've heard this verse before. I'm going to read it to you because I just came on you kind of hard. I'm going to read this to you, encourage you a little bit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to make your life miserable. But he came in order that you might be saved through him. God sent Jesus to give us life. God sent Jesus to save us, to deliver us, 
to be victorious over death, to be the rightful king, and to be our friend, as we'll talk about next week. I pray tonight that if you've never tasted the love of God, that you would choose to follow him, that tonight that you would have an encounter with his love and that you'd realize how amazing and off the charts it is and that you would respond to that by saying, I'm giving it all for him. And I pray that if you're a follower of Jesus, but if you're honest, you're like me and you've been in both boats, you've been trying to do both things, you've been trying to be a Christian and live your own life, that tonight that you would decide that I'm relinquishing my rights, I'm laying them down at the feet of Jesus, and I'm going to allow him to be the leader and the king of my life. And when you do that, you're going to find joy. You're going to find joy. All right, the main idea, Jesus is the greatest of all time because he's the promised king who leads us into joy in life.